These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through Through the the wind wind door. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Through the Wind Door with your friends Greg and Toby. We finally made it to part three. This is, the book has, does it have five parts in total or four parts? I, okay, clearly, like, I I, I sounded like I was prepared for this and then completely didn't. That's the best way to do a long epic, is to go in with the best of intentions of preparation and realize once you've started, oh no, oh god, what am I doing? (laughs) No, okay, I was correct after all. Four parts in total. Oh my gosh, Um, we're halfway there. I mean... Also, chapter numbers reflect that, actually, I think. Does it? I didn't think that I think it's something like 40 chapters? 42 chapters. 42. Alright, so today we passed the halfway mark on that because we're going 21 through 23 we're technically both right because as mentioned chapter 20 is the last chapter of part two it's just that part one has 12 chapters part two has eight part three has 12 again leaving part four with the remaining 10 chapters remember this is the biggest story the one that overflowed into Secret Room's Definitive Edition and almost killed Alex. Hopefully, it won't also kill us. The reason why Chapter 21 works as well as it does is because it helps resolve the events at the end of Part 2 with everything that happened with the Southern Cross, putting Tabitha back at the zinc mine, and setting the stage for some of the rising action for part three. It's also the chapter where we finally catch back up on what Miguel and Hrau are doing. And it may feel unusual having this moment here, as it doesn't seem to tie to anything else that's going on in the story, except when you see the new orders to investigate a wind door in Memphis. And if you weren't paying attention to the small details, that's where the remains of the Natchez is. This means that the gap between our Phase 1 heroes is closing, especially when a certain other character is revealed later on in this chapter. I was going to say, oh, that's fantastic. So we've got one fantastic fan-favorite heroine from a previous book coming into these chapters, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Just one. No. Just one. (laughs) (laughs) Over the course of the last five years... I'd come to have a greater appreciation for the component parts of a story. What gets introduced to us when? How different flavors of genre combine to make a greater whole? Caring more about media components that I'd never really put much thought into before. Sure, these are things that Alex talks about a lot on School of Movies, but other explainers of media have contributed to my overall learning as well. Dan Olson, Mikey Newman, Patrick Willems, Lindsay Ellis, Ian Danskin, Princess Weeks, Red from OSP. But 
it's one thing to merely enjoy listening to other people explain things I don't get in ways that I can't absorb. It's another to be able to internalize them so I can see them for myself in media that hasn't already been explained to me. This is the wisdom behind Alex denying Toby and I all those old roundtables from New Century. We've had to build this all ourselves. Why am I mentioning this now? Well, I'm going to put a lot of what I learned to use at the tail end of this episode in a small Alex-style monologue. But more importantly, one of the things I realized when analyzing Chapter 21 was how it mirrored Chapter 14 and, to an extent, even Chapter 1. These chapters are liminal spaces, transitional moments that set up what this part of the story is going to be about. Chapter 1 is an introduction to the world, just as many of the following chapters are either introductions to the characters, the plot, or the stakes. Chapter 14 establishes the new status quo, and every moment that it chooses to highlight tends towards something that will be paid off or advanced during Part 2. Part 3 now introduces how that status quo will be shaken up and tested either through the tension between the existing characters, or how the introductions of new characters will affect the established balance. Part 3 is also the only time where the story section is named something ambiguous. Part 1 is Before the Voyage, Part 2 is On the Road, and the upcoming Part 4 is Turning Point. All fairly dryly informational. Sure, doorways could just be saying, hey, we got a bunch of wind doors coming up. But there are more doors than that. And there's at least a couple that spring to mind as being subtextually significant. Which leads me to look at doorways as being more metaphorical. Doorways are themselves liminal spaces. And aside from being a way to get from one distinct location to another, a doorway also implies a door a barrier that can be imposed to prevent progress, temporarily or permanently. That's foreshadowing for later. It's like in that wellspring of reference points of various epic journey tropes, Avatar The Last Airbender, we go from the group being three people of Mm -hmm. Aang, Katara, Sokka, and then that expanding when Toph joins in and... There's even more members who join and complicate the group dynamic further along the way. Oh, I thought you were going to say that it all changed as soon as Momo joined the group. uh, Momo is a tapestry of rich, complex, multi-season level arcs that when he's absent from the group, everybody's asking, where's Momo? (laughs) Where's my feature-length film on Momo, goddammit? Oh yeah, because the news came out recently for the uh, the new animated movies, which mm. I honestly didn't know that they were doing animated movies. So that no, was this was unexpected. this was a new announcement. It took a lot of people by surprise, I think. Because really, the, okay, so I did. I yeah. wasn't missing anything then. All yeah, because right. like the big thing was oh the Netflix live action, which we're all sure will either a happen or b be competent. Wink, wink. Mm. is its own thing and that's just adapting the original source material and now it's just like okay let's actually have stuff that you know you can be excited about not casting shade 
it might be good. It might be good, the live action stuff, but the feature length stuff, that actually feels like more of the original stuff, if that makes sense. Well, is it being done by the original team? It at least has production by uh, some of the people involved. Mm -hmm. I will have to look into that. I am ill-equipped with this. I just saw a couple of headlines, so I will not be you or our listeners' one-stop source of it. My point is to reference Avatar The Last Airbender, because we have a contract to do that at least once a recording session, and to apply it to this grand epic of characters we are invested in. So, yes, with the group dynamic we have here, we have our fundamental team, and now we can see how the sort of essential team steam is being built up as mm -hmm. they go along to its full components. So it goes beyond acting as a promise of what's to come and is now stepping into the territory of taking the wind-up action before stepping up to bat and hit the home run that, you know, we've been kind of building up to all game in this clumsy sports metaphor that I'm totally <laughs> equipped to deliver through the discussion of Miguel and Crow learning small slices of each other's language and using sign language to fill the gaps, we're handed an indication that Crow is acquiring the wherewithal to communicate with human characters beyond Miguel. It's set up facilitating what's to come in a similar vein to the Monsterverse casually dropping the fact that Kong is still growing in Skull Island. You know what's coming, and you know why that fact is going to be really cool really soon. As for chaos, yeah, it is setting up the team to undergo complications that make the story equal parts socially tense and more exciting. We've seen this group, as it currently is, handle an external threat as black and white uncomplicatedly evil as the Southern Cross. You couldn't get like more perfect candidates for if there was... A Shredder's Revenge, uh, River City <laughs> Girls, Streets of Rage style sort of Steam Heart side scrolling beat em up, and wouldn't you love to play that? Like the Southern Cross would be fill your basic components of feel completely at ease beating the crap out of all of these guys and doing possibly some more lethal team. Psst. Hey, Spencer, get on this shit. Seriously. In an age where everything is RPGs and first-person shooters, how revolutionary would a side-scroller feel with Team Steam? Sure, some parts of it you'd have to take liberties with, but imagine something with retro graphics, just the right amount of camp, and some modern upgrades in the way that Scott Pilgrim vs. The World did it. Steamheart instead of the party wagon. Brioth, the Lord of Brimstone and the Plague Doctor as mini-bosses. You could even include parts from other books, especially the DC riots. Tell me that you wouldn't enjoy a side-scroller where you would get to beat down on the Southern Cross, Klansmen, and racist cops. This is the kind of catharsis I need in my life right now. I would probably pick Jeremy and see like what sort of strange moves the game would come out for that, where he's just sort of like running around passionately, but he bumps into other people and stuff like that. That would be his moveset. He would be the quirky one on the team. No, no, no. Uh, Jeremy would be like, he would literally be like, okay, this is the move you do for a fireball. And it's like Dan doing a sketch and then throwing it at somebody from Street Fighter. <laughs> 
we've seen them handle mooks like these guys who were scary and they're awful, but you know, they showed that they could handle it. Now we're seeing the double-edged sword of seeing how they deal with aggravation from within that might challenge their cohesion where were they to face a similar threat in the near future paired with the thrilling possibilities of what might come to be should these two groups of heroes unite there are some people that are sort of tired of the trope where superheroes fight each other in comics or movies or whatever it is you're talking about But the simple truth of the matter is, when you're fighting a clear-cut enemy, it's exciting action that you don't necessarily need to worry about the overall consequences of, because even though you don't know what cost the heroes will have to pay for individual successes, you know that they will succeed. At least, you know that they will succeed in most of the genres that we prefer to follow. I'm not a fan of Grimdark. And I know that there's more of a thing be be like, you know, who's actually going to survive a story like that. But mm. whenever you You're have Walking any... Dead, where like, pe- yeah, they're counting on the audience tuning in just to see who gets their brains smashed in next week or something like that. Yeah, exactly. The point I'm trying to make is that there tends to be a predictability and that the hero will find a way to prevail against the selfish antagonist, the fascist regime and or the flawed, toxic beliefs of the enemy. What can be unpredictable and compelling is when heroic characters give in to weakness, or when two heroes come to conflict on what the right thing to do is. Regardless of whether physical harm is done or it's merely a contest of words that leaves a rift in the group, we fear the consequences of such a fight. This is the kind of conflict that we hate to see because we love all of our people here and Mm. want to see them get along, especially when some of them are right in different ways and you can sort of empathize with everybody. Mm. It's just individual personality traits are clashing up against each other. Yeah, like it's interesting that you describe it as fights, whether it's with swords and fists or on a different scale, because that is actually kind of what is going on when you have Mm -hmm. personalities clashing particularly in character-driven media the fights are more conversations that are happening Mm -hmm. with the actions kind of being a good indicator of like the personalities and what drives them and what they are like and uh, someone who's always very good at analyzing that in both wrestling and in a lot of battle heavy anime and manga is super eye patch wolf he's a very good person to check out some of his material there's a video on i forget the name of it but it's a series which is meant to be the manga that makes you better at fighting oh god i remember seeing that one that was amazing particularly when they get to that one last fight between two actual mma specialists and Mm. how it weaves back and forth between one of them winning and another of them winning, and right when their faces are a bloody pulp and they're just struggling to keep standing, the two of Mm. them embrace. And that feels like the kind of thing that would happen in an anime. It's shocking to see in real life. And Mm. I sort of now get why Super Eyepatch Wolf 
finds this sort of thing as compelling as he does. Yeah, and that's what it is, is whether it's with, as you say, fists, blades, or just words, the stakes are perhaps scaled back, but nevertheless, the characters are coming to blows. Mm -hmm. A good way of articulating the differences is, think of it as in the Avengers, you've got the fight in the woods between, you want me to put the hammer down, Mm -hmm, very mm -hmm, physical, mm -hmm. and the way that like the action's happening reflects the personalities of the characters you know thor striking iron man with lightning mm-hmm. iron man you channeling that and using his technology to gain an upper hand cap being an immovable object all of that comes across you get their personalities in the way the action scene advances but you then have a fight later on where no punches are thrown which is all of them around the scepter, like, put on the suit. Mm-hmm. All of that, where it feels as if a fight is about to happen, but they are already fighting. This moment was revelatory on re-listening during the edit. I was engaged with what Toby was saying, but at the time I hadn't fully considered the implications of his words. Those two scenes, the fight in the forest and the fight on the helicarrier, are mirrors of each other. Cap presents an immovable moral stance. Tony redirects the power of others, or adapts tactically to the situation. Thor is as arrogant and relentless in his social arguments as he is in his fighting. Even Natasha and Bruce are being true to themselves and how they contribute, Bruce in particular unleashing a powerful emotional confession to everyone that leaves the group momentarily stunned. Who we are in one part of our life tends to be who we are in all parts of our life. Regardless of what kind of strengths we have, we tend to marshal that default strength when needed. It's instinct. We would have to make a concerted effort to respond a different way, especially when we feel threatened. Keep that in mind as we move forwards. It's great to see the flow of that, and there's a chapter later on which kind of taps into the first half of it, what we're talking about here, the sort of getting Mm. to know someone through a physical fight. You'll see that later on within Team Steam. I don't think that's giving things away. You're also getting to see a range of conflicts, because that is what people do. They don't just have the same fight even if they are repeatedly coming into conflict over the same subject matter the same principles the details change the circumstances change even the way that you express the conflict changes and while i do agree with the principle of something that i know the comic reviewer linkara has expressed in the past of it's tiresome to see the only story being told whenever heroes are in the same room as one another, be, I don't trust you, and oh, this could never work, and we're going to fight among ourselves. And it feels much more rewarding when we actually get to see them do the thing it is that they're going to do. Heck, I'm having a really fulfilling experience at the moment watching the original DCAU Justice League show mm-hmm. and seeing a version of the Justice League that isn't mother boxes and armor sets that look like they'd poke your eye out if you just shift slightly (laughs) and everyone being the worst versions of these characters who all just feel so like tired and 
upset to be there doing mm. this. I feel as if Steamheart is managing so far to show we've had this encounter with the Southern Cross. We get that cohesion, even as we see moments in that which are telltale signs of the friction that is within. Annie seeing Abigail go off on her own and basically having a moment of, oh, shit, shit, fuck, like, what is Mm -hmm. she doing? Oh, God, what do I do? That is tense. While you sort of read, oh, we've got half the book left, I don't think Steamheart is going to crash into a wall and everyone rocks fall, everybody dies. I don't think that's going to happen. And I don't think the Southern Cross are going to win here. But nevertheless, you get to see this moment of, tension of what does our character here decide based on what this other character has thrown into her lap well so here's the thing you and i and many other people on the school of movies discord are connoisseurs one could say of a lot of different (laughs) media out there it's like we Mm. have we've been we've been doing this a while this is part of the reason why we follow someone that talks about a new movie or a new media property every week. We like these things just like mm. they do, and we want to hear what they have to say and how that matches up against our own opinions. We as all sit someone... around in our smoking jackets, that's right, yes. But what media generally teaches us is something different than real-life experiences, which is that you can have a physical fight, but wounds from physical fights always heal without any issues that's not like real life real life Mm. is a lot more dangerous than your action movies or your superhero movies or any Mm. media that's borrowing on some of the same tropes the things Mm. that we don't know how they're going to turn out is how emotional wounds are going to heal or even if they do Mm. like an emotional wound not healing was a major plot point as part of the Infinity Saga. So the conflict coming up between Annie and Abigail almost feels like we've sort of kind of just been waiting for it to happen. Annie herself has had several moments where she's worried about how she's going to deal with Abigail if she gives in to her own emotional chaos. Everything has been leading up to this, And this first conflict, at least, seems to come to some kind of resolution, but Mm. it doesn't change the fact that that fire could flare up again. Absolutely. And I am enjoying this so much, and I want to talk about how the uncertainty is palpable because it's not a set given how they're going to act, because, as we know, Abigail is a bit of an unknown factor at times. She does want to exert agency, but also Annie, who is chosen because she's meant to be this sort of Miss America, sure shot. You think that she's a set factor, but actually because of everything we saw her go through in Arlington, not just at the end with the Mm. encounter with Seth, but at the beginning where she was given a charge, she was able to practice like what she has learned and built herself up to be, like the best that you could possibly expect to have in a situation like this, and yet she wasn't good enough to Mm. protect and prevent calamity from happening. And now 
she's tasked with something like that again, except it's even more important because, as we see in Arlington, the political position that Hayes occupied, they're seeking a replacement, and that can be done within the security and safety of Washington. They're on the frontier, and who replaces Abigail as the person who holds the endowment is up in the air due to a number of physical factors and personal choices. They're both uncertain, and so she is really placed in this position where we don't know how Abigail will act, and I don't think Annie knows what she will decide in certain situations. She herself wants to do everything that she can in order to avoid having to make that decision. That's right. She's avoiding, like, she wants to avoid that at all costs, and that's a reasonable thing to do. But she, it's as if she hasn't even afforded herself asking what she will do if it comes to that. I think she's avoiding the question in part because, just like that conversation between herself and Abigail about worrying whether or not Frank will be willing to quit the army after this is all done. She's worried about what it might reveal about herself Mm. if she actually has to make that decision. Yes. Now, I said I wouldn't go on about all of this and then proceeded to go on about (laughs) all of this. So now I will do the responsible and diligent thing and set us back onto the actual sort of specific plot events that we can use as a framework moving forward, because this is great, I love this, let's advance. Well, I I wanted to start on a cheerier note, rather than some of the more difficult stuff to come in these three chapters. Mm -hmm. So, I want to talk now about Jeremy, and I'm breaking my unwritten rule about bringing up something in the book that I just like without having any deep analysis, which is, I love how chapter 21 starts. It's Jeremy, so nice. Yes, it, it, it's, it's, it's so, well, I mean, it's an expression of not just, like, as the saying goes, I love all of my children, but Jeremy and Harry in particular, together, just seem so... Like I, I, I'm, I'm like, what, what's her name? Just like clasping my hands together and looking up with starry eyes as I watch the two of them get along. And on top of him just being a good boy and wanting to help out someone that needs it, he's such a good boy. It fits in with his character because mm. unlike Raven, Jeremy is very much a people person. Him reaching out to Harry when he sort of sees that Frank is a little bit too busy to be the team dad, because we know that Frank was the one taking the lead in terms of making sure that Harry's needs were met back in Arlington. Jeremy even alludes to that as part of the conversation. One could almost say that he's doing what he's doing because maybe during that whole thing that happened with the Southern Cross made him feel a little bit like he wasn't necessarily contributing enough to the team because he's there for one very specific purpose. The The conversation that we always keep coming back to is people that want to be of use. Jeremy mm. is seeking a way to be of use to the group and mm. him offering 
the stuff that he's good at, or at the very least, the things that he can do to help Harry out when she's focused on her role in the group and people are aware that she can lose herself a little bit in that. Mm. Jeremy is likewise aware of that. And so he is attempting to make sure that, quote unquote, this machine, the machine of the group is well oiled, so to mm. speak. While there is, that, of course, that component of understanding how Harry's mind works and wanting to just kind of help her be able to do what she needs to do, that can potentially come across as something like, oh, we need to mind Harry. Mm. What I love about this is that it is not patronizing to Harry. When you look at what the conversation is and what they talk about, all of the drive is squarely within Harry's court because mm. Jeremy is saying, what do you need? You're the one who can make these wonders happen and I want to help you do that. What is it that you need? And that's wonderful. He's being accommodating mm. and not assuming that he knows what she needs, but rather... He assumes nothing. Her. Yeah, exactly. Mm. He he says, what do you need? It's not like, listen, I'm going to go do... St-. Like, he... Even that would be a nice thing for someone to sort of say to someone and it would be well-meaning and it would probably be like, oh, well, thank you, but I don't really need that. He doesn't even assume that much. He just is like, I believe that you would benefit from help. What that help is, is all down to you. Like, And mm-hmm. I'm here to provide that. Jeremy is dead set on cementing his status as the member of Team Steam that I am most like. I was listening to our last recording session earlier today, and I was re-listening to this. I really identify with Jeremy. And it just keeps happening. You know, the comparisons just keep jumping out at me. What you've picked up on and described here, it's so pleasant, and I love it. He's able to make this stop on the road feel just kind of more at peace and domestic with his promise of warm nourishment and support. And you can see that in the way that Harry some of her lines are read. There's just kind of a feeling of like, after this attack and after her baby has had these damages, she sort of feels a bit more like, I like that, you know, just Mm. she feels optimistic isn't the right word, but just kind of like, she feels sort of safe and able to enjoy things and think about things outside of her work and Steamheart. I think that's the real accomplishment here. What is it he says he'll make for her? Pancakes? Uh, we know well, we know that he makes pancakes later yeah. on, which we can't get into just yet. That's beyond yet. this. But he says something in this segment here about like Oh no no some... no. He was specifically asking, Do you want me to get you one of those funnel cakes? That's that, it, like, that's it. Some some vendor was selling mm. and mm. You know, that's a treat that you couldn't necessarily mm. get anywhere. As we're going to talk about when we get to the cooking segment of Steamheart, <laughs> this is a time in American history where the things that you might really enjoy might be difficult to come by. So the mm. fact that there is this potentially sweet treat that you mm. can't just get anywhere, that feels like one of the ways to express... Like, you're not just getting someone a gift or being thoughtful, you're like going out of your way to provide something that they wouldn't necessarily get or think to get on Mm. their own impetus. Yep. 
James and the Peppermint. Yeah, 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 yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Yes. By Jeremy doing this, Harry, in her narration, says something like, I like funnel cakes. And so even in her head, where we've seen how much she can really focus in Mm. and laser target her subject of work, she's able to think of something outside of this task ahead of her and appreciate that. And I think that's a really commendable thing that Jeremy does. What you're describing here, it feels like something that I would term as little sibling contributions, or at least what I've made out of the contributions to my family, being Mm -hmm. the youngest sibling. Growing up, there were many times, still are to an extent, where I wanted to help, but I had to kind of pass what actually remained to be done that was most important. Because whether it was my parents or my two older brothers, I think they grew used to being active and getting things done or seeing to problems themselves. When you are of an age where you know that you want to help reduce the day-to-day burdens of those around you, you have to figure out what it is that they actually need that isn't necessarily being covered by the pragmatic skills and judgement of your family or friends. And more often than not, I'd reach similar conclusions to Jeremy. I'd provide emotional support, offer outside perspective, and tell them they need to take moments to go easy on themselves and tend to essential upkeep. And I'd make myself an assistant, trusting that they knew what they needed for them to get what needed doing done. I always wish that I can do more and be more practical, and I never stop trying to do all that I can for those around me. But sometimes the earnest approach, like what we see Jeremy do here, is everything. And I'm glad to be good at providing that and to see a character like Jeremy show that as well. I will say that being the youngest in a group, particularly a familial group, can have a difficult flip side to it. That's Mm. not what we're seeing here, necessarily. No one is infantilizing Jeremy, even though there is a little bit of an age range of the group. Like, I think the oldest one here is probably Raven, Mm. but he also completely sets himself apart from the group, except when it's absolutely necessary. And the next one after that is... Butler? Absolutely, because we know that there is... An age gap between him and Annie. Yeah, exactly. And everybody else is of a similar age range, right around the beginnings Mm. of their 20s and stuff like that. It's not like I've kept track, but it's enough to remember little details along the way, like the fact that Annie is slightly younger than Abigail and yet acts more adult. We know that James and Abigail are similar ages to each other. And I'm pretty sure that Harry's age was mentioned at some point during Arlington. So regardless of the fact that I don't have like a a, a spreadsheet keeping track of all of that stuff, my brain knows to put them in certain kinds of boxes. Alex has a spreadsheet. Oh, yeah, he absolutely does. I'm calling calling you out, Alex. You've got the (laughs) spreadsheet, don't you? I find myself wondering how old... Donald is. 
because that hmm. never gets into that. And he, he comes across as this just very taciturn bear that mm. has a very different energy to Jeremy that makes me wonder if there's a significant age gap between the two of them. I mean, it's not like this is the modern era where people of a different sexuality can easily find each other. So when you find someone of a similar mindset, you kind of want to, as the saying goes, because of Donald's nature, it's sort of hard to pin him down in general. Mm. I have a general That's sense of the outline he fills, mm. but we've never actually seen into the man's head or anything like that. He's always the passive observer that contributes every now and then. And everything that we understand about Donald is through Jeremy's eye. His bear-like qualities feel like more of a state of mind than necessarily a product of age. Mm. Maybe a little bit his Scottish heritage plays into that. Like there's a certain image that we tend to get when thinking of a Scotsman, even though I absolutely know that a Scotsman can include an enormous man wearing a kilt and playing bagpipes and can also include Sean Connery and can also include David Tennant. Scotland voted Remain, you weapons-grade plum. They voted Remain and they hate your guts, you ludicrous tangerine ball bag. Scotland voted to stay, you numpty. Scotland voted overwhelmingly to stay in Europe, you two-paid fuck trumpet. Scotland voted to stay, you witless fucking cocksplat. As with anywhere in the world, there's a wide breadth of personality types and everything like that. There is never any box, but... In that sense, I think it is nice that Donald goes against the sort of stereotype image. Think the Scotsman in Samurai Jack or Brave, where there's a lot of mm -hmm. just, oh, they're very angry and they're very sort of <laughs> saying everything in a way that you can't understand what they're saying and stuff. Like, no, Donald is kind of the chillest person in the room. I appreciate his presence, and I think that's why we note his absence, especially Frank, which we'll get to later on. Well, no, that, let's talk about that now. Okay, As scratch was... that. Which we'll get yeah. to now. <laughs> well, I mean, when I was writing this outline to begin with, I began with Jeremy because he is the first thing that happens in chapter 21. But skipping ahead to two chapters later, something that I had forgotten was a significant thing that happened was this two men in tubs conversation between himself and Frank feeling very uh, Shanghai noon, where they're having this conversation about unicorns and other stuff. And it's a wonderful, not quite heart to heart exactly, but it's a social occasion with not a lot of stakes behind it. Mm. And we get to see Frank leading the way in doing mm. what he does best, making connections. The man has a big heart and likes to talk with people. Meaning that as he correctly surmises, he is exactly what Jeremy needs. While it's not obvious, it's entirely possible that between the attack on Steamheart and being denied at the first wind door, Jeremy is also stressed and needs to, as Butler puts it, recharge. We haven't seen a whole lot of interaction between Frank and Jeremy yet, or to be perfectly honest, 
Jeremy and anybody, which is part of the reason, again, why I wanted to begin with Jeremy to begin with. We saw a little bit of him back in Arlington, and we've had a few key moments with him throughout Steamheart, but overall, he's gotten the least amount of screen time, and I Mm -hmm. feel like I wanted to highlight any moments that he got to himself so that we can continue to discuss him because Mm. he has an arc in this story as much as anybody else. And Mm. he has an effect on the people around him just because the stuff that he does intersects with people less than a lot of the more active people. I don't like the idea of discounting him entirely, especially since it plays into certain difficult tropes where the gay character is like the wacky best friend or something like that. And I don't ever want to make it seem like Jeremy is just here to check a box or anything like that. He's the established character of the story that has a successful non-traditional relationship that Harry might even be looking to in terms of like, oh, this is something that's possible for me. That was part of her own personal arc Mm. in terms of noticing the fact that Jeremy and Donald couldn't dance together, having an interest in Abigail, and then approaching Tabitha in regards to discussing the mm, blueprints for being romantic with another woman. That almost makes their connection in chapter 21 sort of like, We don't just like seeing it because these are good people and we like to see them doing things for each other. It's also because they're having a social interaction that has nothing to do with their sexuality. It can be difficult sometimes to write stories about people on the LGBTQ spectrum and not have their personal story be overwhelmed by that part of their life. Steamheart tries to avoid that by having enough characters on the spectrum but each with a different way of exploring how to include it. In Jeremy's case, it's just something he is. He is in a loving relationship with Donald, but his personal arc is about something else. In Harry's case, she's on a journey of self-discovery and coming of age, so her coming to terms with her sexuality is naturally a part of that story. Abigail, meanwhile, has already come to terms with being bi but is still dealing with her chaotic emotions for James as a result of the tragedy with Lucy. That said, her arc is not really about James, and instead coming to terms with her need for agency. It just so happens that being Harry's first is an expression of that. And then, of course, there's Tabitha, who may be a mentor for Harry in terms of her sexuality, but is important thematically in Steamheart for reasons other than that. But now I've taken us off track again. Let's get back to Jeremy. This trip is actually more about figuring out this other side of his life, which is mm-hmm. the thing that he has since he was a kid, always been wanting to see that horizon. It's yeah. figuring out what this side of him means to him. And also what it will mean when he actually gets what he wants. Yeah, exactly. You were saying earlier that Jeremy gets an arc. Everybody in this book gets an arc. We've got so many arcs in Steamheart <laughs> that you can make an aqueduct. Like, <laughs> but yeah, you're right. This is a lovely little tidbit to see because it's Steamheart in repose, which is important to see just to flesh out that 
story. We've talked about that in the past. That yeah, ramp, it, ramp, ramp, ramp. Quiet moment, quiet moment, quiet moment. Ramp, ramp, ramp. Quiet hmm. moment, quiet moment. Also, with these chapters, you'll see there's a couple of tensions among characters. So it's mm-hmm. nice to see something where there is actually kind of zero tension. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right on the money with the call that not only Jeremy would be feeling a combination of somewhat deflated and shaken at the recent brush with the Southern Cross, making a show of support to Harry all the more sweetly commendable because after this skirmish, he's like, right, what can I do to help someone else? It's a sweet impulse of his. Mm-hmm. I think you're right that Frank would pick up on that need for Jeremy to unwind with not only a bath, but some soothing company. His remark during the narration that he's sure that being on the road for so long away from the man he loves would take a toll is an indication of Frank showing compassion for Jeremy beyond him just being a asset to the team, contributing in his like expertise. He even prioritizes this over being in immediate attendance to James, his yeah. charge, which when we compare against Annie's agitation with the difficulties brought upon her by her equivalent charge, seems much more laid back. This is, of course, more feasible for Butler than it is for Annie, because, first, James is not Abigail and is not prone to the same rebellious displays of obstinacy, and, second, the character who we're going to talk about is with James at this particular point, and as Agent Wolf has proven their reliability that can make them someone to be counted on and not to bring harm to a fellow agent of this government. Frank and Jeremy's conversation in their bars was at one point, I think, going to be contained to one of those post-credits world-building episode epilogues, which we may very well be talking about quite soon. If uh, Yeah, yeah, Alex, get on yeah. that. We're uh, we, <laughs> Inquiring minds want to know. Toby has experience with this. I don't. I, I want to know about the stuff that I don't know about. No, there's some good stuff in there. Yeah. With its expansion and inclusion in the main text, however, it brings a relaxed pleasantness that is appreciated in contrast to the awkward tension that we're about to see. Yeah. I also suspect, based on a few of those things that sort of happened off camera, when James was writing in his journal for part of chapter 21, that Frank might need some time away from James. Because one of the things that a journal entry gets into is how James kept using Frank as a sounding board for trying to figure out why it was that he was not having any luck with his endowment or questions about the endowment in general, where it came from, and everything like that. And the journal entry shows that James is aware that Frank got a little agitated by his over-focusing on the subject, particularly since Frank is definitely interested in engaging with someone conversationally, but he might get a little bit tired about James keeping talking about a subject that he can't necessarily contribute anything useful to, and it's just starting to get a little bit browbeating in his own mind. Yeah, it'd be like if he sat in on one of our recording sessions. (laughs) Yeah, something like that. Uh, Obviously, we're not discussing the elephant in the room, 
because... Bring that elephant right up now! (laughs) Because, again, we're trying to avoid um, talking about things that haven't happened yet, but I can assure you, as we always do, that we are eventually going to get back to uh, one of the fascinating little Easter eggs that that conversation with Jeremy and Frank provides. Yes, I know it's frustrating when we keep doing this, but I have to pick my battles when it's worth it to include spoilery conversations, and this isn't one of them. So don't nag me about it. Having said all of that, and I can just see the expression on Toby's face here, I I think we really need to get to the big development of these chapters. Finally, we get to see someone we have been waiting for over two years at this point, yeah. to return to us. We've waited so long. Come back to us now at the turn of the tide. It's Rebecca Wolverton. She's back. What the yes. fuck is she doing here? <laughs> well, okay, so let, let's start discussing the reintroduction of Rebecca Wolverton here. This is part of the reason why Alex likely did not want to use the assembled cast cover for the novel. He had in mind to show Steamheart in action. He couldn't get that together in time for the actual release. And using the cast cover, even though it's inclusive and shows just all of the heroes from all of these years coming together in common purpose, it ruins the surprise to have her suddenly show up in the story. Alex has gone on the record to say that in early drafts, James was going to end up conversing with a sex worker at the Diamond Bell and go on to be intimate with her. That might have been fine for some values of James's arc, but I'm glad that Alex chose instead to bring back Rebecca. In addition to the fact that I love Rebecca and I love her introductory story, I think that her inclusion not only provides this moment with a lot more compelling aspects, that her potential participation in everything that goes forward after this will help enrich the story and perhaps provide us more of the closure that we didn't get with the ending of Let Them Go. Not to mention that this first chapter with her throws a lot of wonderful little Easter eggs into our laps. The introduction of Good Boy Rafe, and the deliberate mention of his fascination with bootlaces, the presence of her double-barreled shotgun. We don't know if that's the same shotgun as the one that she was carrying around in Ravenwood, but it almost doesn't matter. Like we mm, made Symbolically, we actually, it's yeah, the exactly. same shotgun. Yeah. Symbolically, it's the same shotgun, and we actually spoke a great deal on how Carrying something like it with her is totemic Mm -hmm. of those that she had to let go. But more than anything else, the way that her ultimate reveal is a mirror of the way we found out about how she met the original Wraith back in that part three flashback, that is just perfectly staged. It's lovely to meet someone from home, I said, extending my hand. I'm Dr. James Penrose. She shook it firmly. Rebecca Wolverton. I 
finished all the other audio dramas while the final chapters of Steamheart were still coming out, which meant that I had to wait three or four weeks, I think, for the novel to be finished before I could finally go to Alex and say, please let me download the whole thing at once so that I can listen to it on my own time rather than trying to go back and find each individual chapter. For most other White Scarves, Rebecca's story was already a year old at this point. To me, Let Them Go was fresh in my head, having first heard it only a few months prior. And even though I had heard Sharon voice many different characters by that point, the specific cadence of Rebecca was burned into my brain. The second I realized who Agent Wolf really was, I couldn't decide whether to punch the air or dope-slap myself for not realizing who the chapter title was hinting at. As mentioned a moment ago, after the uncertain ending of the first novel, it's frankly both a relief and a fresh coal on the fire of hope to see that she survived and thrived. This reveal is perfection, and I know that you are resistant to that word being used, Alex, but swallow your medicine, it is perfect. Back when I was first listening to Steamheart as the chapters were coming out, I think I might have caught up on a bunch of them, but whatever. Point is, at the time that Steamheart was new, and I had no experience with it, that moment made me stop in the street, gasp, and have the biggest grin on my face, saying nothing to the confused looks that some people shot my way as a result. It just wasn't something that I had considered as a possibility. Within the story, the last place we had seen her was in the UK, and the way the world went afterwards, seeing her here on the other side of the Atlantic, it's remarkable. Since we last saw her, so much time has passed that she could have been anywhere, so to see her open up the doors to let Team Steam and the audience into this temporary home that she's been able to make for herself, it's an unexpected joy in the most disarming and intensely felt way. Secondly, on a meta level, those who had read Princess Thieves before this, due to order of the book's release, you know, we would have figured that we'd maybe see her again there, because Princess Thieves had been written before Let Them Go, so we had no sign of Rebecca in Princess Thieves, but that was the UK-based New Century story. We expected, like, okay, so maybe she'll show up in the sequel or something, because, you know, that just made sense. I just thought that Steamheart was progressing more or less unchanged from Alex's original plans for this story, because, as we mentioned, Steamheart was sort of begun and then halted, let them go happened, and then we came back to this. And, you know, seeing that this character who was tied to this unplanned story that now serves as the entry point for this fictional universe, show up here in this celebration of what New Century has accomplished to this point, and it's played as a moment of tender yet emotionally explosive, oh my gosh, it's you! <laughs> it's been so long, I'm not sobbing, I am. It's the greatest gift to just have her be part of this story and brought back, because both author and audience want her to be here. And honestly, it's not even a weird hiccup that she appears in a completely different context 
to her quote-unquote origin story. Mm. We spent a lot of time talking about the gothic narrative back when we were first discussing Let Them Go. Meanwhile, as we'll get into when we discuss The Princess Thieves, the tenor of that story is very different, not only from Let Them Go, but from any other story written up till that point in New Century. You could integrate Rebecca into that world, but it would make much more sense for her continuing narrative to be relevant to a world that uses more gothic spice than the Princess Thieves does. On top of that, her presence here is now a bridge by which further plot developments can be built around. This is what we were alluding to a few episodes ago, that Rebecca was likely the one to provide Thomas with all that intel that Jeremy couldn't tell Abigail. Now, Mm. as she's presented in Steamheart, she suddenly made the transition to be like, she's a double O agent or something like that. Someone Mm. on the akin. Someone Mm. on the akin to Agent Li Ying Long, because she actually mentions during her conversation with James that she was at the April ball and just sort of watching from the sidelines much Mm. as Agent Lee herself was, not interacting socially with everybody else, but just sort of present, doesn't seem to be of import to anybody, just some sort of doxy or something like that. But no, no, she was a secret agent of the cartographers the whole time. And you know what? That doesn't even ring as like untrue, because a story that Sarah and I like to share is that we worked out that there was this big department of English studies at the University of Bristol, where I was there because... I was studying it with my date at the time, and she was there with her friends, and we never met, but we just figured out that we were there, like, in the same place about six months before we met and started dating. So, important connections that you meet later on absolutely can be in big, ball-like settings. Not to mention, yes, her code name is based off of her actual family name, but, like, Mm. you know, making the transition to Agent Wolf, it feels very like Bond, James Bond. And she has the most important backstory to being a spy in that she's an orphan. Oh, wait, now I'm sad. No. no. <laughs> I mean, that's it, isn't it? That like You're simultaneously thrilled to see her, and in a lot of ways she has managed to carry forward all that she needed from the end of let them go but it's earned because it's not just sort of gratifying our every impulse of like look how badass she is look how accomplished she is she traveled across the world and we can compare her to that male british explorer character who i'm blanking on the name of but is oh, uh, uh, calvin wilson Calvin Wilson, she's not dissimilar to him Mm. in terms of background and import to the RSA. But in spite of all these things that show just how much she's grown over the years, you also know that she definitely has felt the drain that the intervening years would have taken its toll on her. That's why it feels earned, because it's not saying, and everything is fine now, it's saying like, we love Rebecca. She is still as admirable as ever, like if not more so. But we also must respect the fact that this is not a life that she would have really wanted for herself, this lack of connection and everything like that. It, there's so many emotions all at once. I'm just 
so happy to see her again. And I kind of just want to have a cup of tea with her and her good boy, Rafe, and just give her a hug and everything. Well, okay. So let me address some of the talking points that you brought Mm. up here. Obviously, we'll get into a little bit more about how her actions in these chapters and later chapters reflect on her because Mm -hmm. there is stuff to unpack. It is intriguing to look at the difference of character between the beginning of Let Them Go, the end of Let Them Go, and now. Mm. It's been 10 years, so she's had a lot of time and potentially experience for her to actually, if not heal from everything that happened to her, but to just sort of let it scar over and to be able to deal with all of that trauma. I mean, that is essentially what her origin story was all about, how to not only deal with all the trauma that she'd never resolved from when she was a kid, but also with this one dark night in Cornwall where she lost everything that was important to her and yet managed to come back from it. When she is presented in Steamheart, she is incredibly collected and seemingly Mm. sure of herself. Mm. Obviously, it's not complete, because we do, in fact, see inside her head as she judges her own actions. But at the same time, even though there is some degree of internal conflict, she doesn't let it hold her back. And this Mm. is kind of why I want to get into why the hypothesis that I made at the end of Let Them Go seems to hold true in terms of her depiction here in Steamheart. She has actually undergone apotheosis and integrated Maiden, Mother, and Crone into herself. Before we begin, I will add a brief caveat since it's been a while since I brought up this topic. I am not a scholar on the matter of the Maiden, Mother, Crone. And even if I were, there are many different ancient and modern interpretations of that mythical archetype. And what is important to each is as myriad as the cultures they come from. But Rebecca's journey in New Century evoked in me a specific emotional resonance, and the themes of the Triune Goddess are how I explain to myself what that resonance means to me. Obviously, she has wisdom. We've always known that. But now Mm. she has, she's not just intelligent, but she has the wisdom of experience. And that Mm. is evident in terms of the kinds of conversations that she's able to have with James about the past and about her own trauma and listening to him talk about his. There's also a quality about her engagement with Team Steam that feels very evocative of Cleo. Rebecca's unfailing hospitality reminds me of Cleo inviting her guests into Ravenwood, polite even in the face of Abigail's rudeness. Her quiet conversation with James is like the conversation that Cleo and Rebecca had back in Chapter 9 of Let Them Go. We also see at a certain point that she expresses an interest in his starlit eye, and I would argue that there's nothing practical in wanting to know about that. It doesn't have anything to do with her assigned mm. duties. She was not sent to join the team. She was merely sent to be able to show them where the new wind door is, and then mm. ostensibly would move on 
to her next task. Yeah, she she's kind of occupying a similar role to Tabitha over mm-hmm. the last couple of chapters. Exactly, except instead of being an agent set in place, she was back at DC and was sent to beat them to Memphis because we already know, even though Steamheart provides a safe mode of travel, it's not necessarily the fastest mode of travel. Perry was trying to avoid unnecessary damage to Steamheart, not to mention making scheduled stops along the way, including with the Zenk mine and everything like that. But And I have this image in my head of her just like of running across the landscape of uh, America, but like on top of Rafe, like riding her <laughs> like she's Midna and it's Wolf Link from Twilight Princess or something like that. Honestly, I would have thought of um, uh, Princess Mononoke instead. That but... too, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to get back onto the original subject, the reason why her interest in James's eye is intriguing to me is because that feels like the kind of curiosity and wonder that is specific to Amanda. Huh. And if we identify, as we did back in Let Them Go, Amanda as the maiden, then that shows an integration of some of Amanda's personality traits into her makeup. Mm. I, I sort of lean towards you to answer this because... I can't not be familiar enough with Maiden Mother Crone without listening to the School of Movies. I absolutely, like, you definitely picked some things up from listening to the various people who have talked about that over the years. But would the element of the Maiden be this aspect of Rebecca being open to pursuing this with James? That's possibly another aspect of her embodying the Maiden. She's not some sort of sexless older woman that James meets and seeks wisdom from. She has a physical attraction. She has an emotional attraction. And we see all of that born out of the wisdom and everything of that. But it's also, yeah, you're hot. Want to go upstairs? I'm paraphrasing, but not by much. I was briefly amused and gobsmacked by the idea of any woman in New Century being that crass. Although, in retrospect, there is at least one character we haven't met yet that might at least pretend to be so crude. I also already had an answer in mind in regards to how Rekka's invitation fit into the archetype, but when Toby asked the question, I did have to take a moment to reconsider the nuances of my answer. Is her pursuit of James a part of the Maiden? Yes and no. Mm -hmm. The Maiden has many different aspects. One of the Mm -hmm. primary of tends to be innocence, sort of coupling with youthful enthusiasm. Again, this is why I associate Amanda specifically with the Maiden archetype. Mm. But at the same time, one of those tangential aspects of the Maiden is the promise of new beginnings. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, pursuing even a temporary relationship with James feels like a new beginning for her, a level of coming back from her old wounds, something that she hasn't actually done in all of that time. She survived, but the way she frames it inside her own head implies that this is not something that she's been able to do. This is not me offering up spoilers, by the way. Yes, 
Toby and I do now know some of what happened to Rebecca in those intervening years, but even back in 2019, Rebecca makes clear in her own internal thoughts that James awoke something in her, something elemental and wondrous, something that she may well have thought herself being incapable of after losing Rafe. So there's definitely a quality of the maiden being part of her choice in and of that moment. Mm -hmm. But no, the overt sexuality and confident desire that Rebecca expresses in this incident is very thoroughly the bailiwick of the mother. That archetype includes many other things. One of the things I mentioned at the time is that Rebecca had some elements of that back in Let Them Go, where she was a representation of desiring stability and power and agency and everything like that. But Mm. the sexual fulfillment part of it was something that she denied herself. This is something that she embraces without a second thought. And that's Mm. part of what makes that whole encounter as compelling to James as it is. Like, who wouldn't be drawn in Mm. by the electricity of knowing that somebody wants you? Absolutely. Uh, Especially in contrast to... At this point, he is feeling so conflicted mm. over Abigail. Rebecca shows this sense of certainty in who she is. And Abigail, when James found out something intimate about her, she sort of responded harshly in a way that, you know, is not entirely undeserved. We'll get into the specifics in a moment. But it certainly shows that she is more conflicted over not only his side of it, but how she feels about it herself. And so the contrast is there that Rebecca really is this stable pillar that Mm -hmm. he can see all of the strengths of. And I think it makes so much sense that after everything we saw Rebecca go through and let them go, where this opportunity for love and a romantic connection was robbed from her multiple times. In mul- it, it was almost as if it happened once with one person, but that was drawn out over the course of many years and was a tiered extraction of this connection from her life. First with her saying, I can't pursue this. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, you're married to someone who means the world to me and I can never pursue this without breaking their heart, mm-hmm. and then their physical death. With all of that happening, she sees this, feels this connection here, and knows that she doesn't want to repeat that same mistake, and she wants to pursue it. It mm. makes all the sense in the world. And for as much as we know that this will complicate matters between James and Abigail, I think we're happy to see this for both parties. It feels right for Rebecca. It feels right for James. Part of the reason why these chapters were as significant as they were, both in our own individual experience of having read Let Them Go and then come to Steamheart after the fact. In your case, Let Them Go was a little bit more fresh because Mm. you listened to it closer to when it actually came out. And for me, that was my first entry into New Century and how I knew that I was going to keep listening and wanted to have more. Mm. The end 
of Let Them Go, for all that it was a resolution, it still sort of left us with an open wound, considering mm. what Rebecca finds out right before she has to go off and hunt the Wendigo that is Amanda. Her choosing James to be with feels like that wound is healing over for us as well. Mm. This also kind of makes Rebecca's story a better version of what they tried to do with Diana in the two Wonder Woman movies. Diana herself is already a divine archetype, but she's prevented from making progress in her life by pining after Steve Trevor rather than moving on and building a new life. She therefore lives on the fringes, seemingly entire decades passing before making a new friend in Barbara, and the plot kicking off where she suddenly gets back the specific man she lost, rather than simply allowing herself to be open to new love. Meanwhile, Rebecca has joined the cartographers in the space of less than one decade, and she's not only been working for Sarah for some time, but the two of them developed a rapport. The following chapters even mention how frustrating it was for Rebecca to not be able to go to Sarah's funeral. It's a development that, on paper, you could see it feeling a bit sort of sudden and unearned, because this is a character who, previous to these chapters, has been unestablished within Steamheart, and last we checked, they were geographically on the other side of the world, coming in, meeting another prominent character, and within the space of a couple of chapters, they have formed this deep connection that they decided to act on and sleep together. On paper, you could see that feeling a bit contrived. could be this thing of, I want these two characters to interact because I think there's a lot we can mine from that, but mm, okay, I'm going to write it that she's suddenly here, she's suddenly here in this story, but it doesn't feel like that. And I think it's because within the writing, there is the content that confirms that James and her like spent a long time talking that mm -hmm. he has heard her story. She's not a stranger to him when they decide to go to bed together. Like At this point, James knows as much about Rebecca from Let Them Go as we, the audience, do, and she about him and his past. That unseen conversation is what allows us to reconcile our understanding of these events with... Mm. James's understanding of these events. We identify with James in this moment. I certainly identify with James in this moment. So when we actually get to the... It's late. She breathed. Would you like me to show you to my bedroom? I'm just like sitting there and going, I'm blushing, aren't I? So... <laughs> <laughs> just like insert whatever your gif of choices of someone like fanning themselves... I think that's it. Is I don't necessarily have the specific pieces that I can point to and say, this is how this doesn't feel as contrived as it could be. I can just say that the writing, the conversation, the performances, the tenderness and delicacy with which we build to a moment that is refreshingly not blunt and crass, it's just direct. It's really well handled. Mm. I had to applaud it. It really is like a magic act where it just feels as if, like, I can't say how this works, but I can see that it does, and it doesn't feel like an illusion. So the metaphor is probably a bit 
lacking, but the point is there's a lot of sophisticated design involved in making this happen and making it work, and I appreciate it immensely. Even after recording this long conversation about Rebecca Wolverton, I still felt I came up short. These revelatory moments are what I had in mind, discussing Rebecca's arc during our episodes on Let Them Go. Obviously, we still have more to unpack about her place in the story and her effect on it. And on top of that, I've also alluded that this is not her final appearance in New Century. But I'm not sure that I did a good job of explaining that there was something about her presence in these chapters that stood out above and beyond anything else that had come before. You may or may not agree. But in order to explain my feelings... I'm going to compare it to two different creative works, one you may be familiar with, and one that you are likely not. I've had occasion to bring up the works of Ian Danskin. Most know him as that guy that made the alt-right handbook videos, but I've also brought up other videos that he did on media analysis and critique. In particular, there was a series of videos that he did called Bringing Back What is Stolen where he discusses how most women in action movies fit into one of six tropey archetypes. I'm not going to get into every last one. It's a good set of videos, and if you haven't already seen them, then I provide for you a link in the show notes. But the relevance is how the women in Fury Road, first among them being Imperator Furiosa, refuse to fit into any of these boxes, and therefore a new, better archetype is needed. And this is how I feel about Rebecca. Let me be clear. I love all the women of New Century. None of them are mere fulfillments of tropes. But at the same time, I would be lying if I said that some of them didn't stray close to some of those archetypes. In Catherine Holloway, we see something of the mama bear, and the same could be said of Frau. Abigail was based on Malcolm Reynolds, which means that she can come across as a bit of a Vasquez. In Amanda, we can see an innocent. And in Annie, we can see that she has been influenced more than a little by suffering. I admit, these are the broadest of strokes. Hell, if anyone can be said to have been through a lot of trauma, it's Rebecca. I even name-checked the final girl trope back in Let Them Go. But there is a qualitative difference to this Rebecca that we meet in Memphis. She isn't more special than any of the other members of Team Steam, and yet she is different from all of them. She is not quick to use violence, but the presence of the shotgun proves that she can use it when she has to. She is confident and warm, quiet and practical. She has Amanda's capacity for wonder and Sarah's capacity for compassion. She can disappear like Lee and make selfless choices like Catherine. She still maintains her independence from traditional femininity, unlike Annie as a wife and Tabitha as a mother. But she is no less feminine for all of that, confident in her sexuality on her own terms. I use the triune goddess to describe her for a reason. One could see her interaction with James as being not unlike Campbell's meeting with the goddess. Yet far from being the feminine ideal, Rebecca is a fallible character in her own right, who makes choices and then questions if they were the right ones. When I came to this point in the audio drama originally, I found myself wondering why I was so affected by Rebecca. 
and it's only now three years later that I begin to understand. Let me share with you a small forgotten movie from 1998 called Montana. And as I do, tell me if any of these story beats sound familiar. Our protagonist is a mob enforcer named Claire Kelsey. She works as the trusted lieutenant of a patriarch known only as The Boss, and has a partner in arms named Nick, someone she trusts with her life. She has unspoken feelings for Nick that she does not act on, but the two of them are obviously close. Working for the boss, she has power and respect, but only in that her power comes from the boss, with his approval of her superior skill and loyalty. Over the course of the movie, the established order starts to disintegrate. There is a traitor in the organization that Claire and Nick are supposed to help root out. Chaos unfolds as the traitor tries to undermine the boss, after which the boss's abused mistress Kitty runs away. Claire is sent to recover Kitty while having to babysit the boss's insecure teen son. But in the process, Kitty kills the son with his own gun. There's even a visual of Claire staring in shock while Kitty sings little nonsense songs to herself, stained with the boy's blood. Partly as a result of this death, the traitor manages to plant the seed of distrust in the mind of the boss for Claire, suggesting she's been the traitor all along. Claire, meanwhile, hates Kitty, not just for putting her reputation in jeopardy, but because to her, Kitty represents the feminine weakness and victimization Claire has fought so hard to avoid. Claire eventually kills one of the traitors, but by that point it's too late. The well has already been poisoned, and there's no easy way for Claire to return to her old life. And then the antagonist that suborned the boss's men makes a proposition to Claire. You can have your old life back. All you have to do is kill the boss and take his place. But before she can make up her mind to do that, she's told part of the price is giving up Kitty as a prize to her new would-be ally. In that moment, she can't do it. Even though she owes Kitty nothing, Claire fights to protect her from further victimization. This selfless choice is repaid when Claire is ambushed, and Kitty saves her. Things come to a head. Nick rallies to her side, and here they are finally briefly able to act on their love for each other. But then the boss's men come, kidnap Kitty, and to protect Claire in the ensuing brutal gunfight, Nick sacrifices himself. As he lays dying, she refuses to leave his side. But he tells her she has to let him go. You're going to do something else with your life, he says. It could be anything you want, so make it good. In the final moments of the movie, Claire confronts the boss, who has now lost most of his men thanks to Claire and Nick. In this moment, the boss tries to apologize and offers to take her back. Where else are you going to go? he asks. Her answer is a gunshot, but it is not a moment of triumph, merely the only possible denouement left for her story. 
She escapes with Kitty, who she gives some of the boss's money, and lets her go find her own way. Claire has lost everything important to her, but she is now free to remake herself, apart from the toxic culture she grew up in, driving alone into her future. Obviously, this story is not the same as Let Them Go, but if you look at the similarities, you can see why Alex's story might have struck a nerve 21 years later. And maybe you also see why it's so important to me that we now get a resolution and see a version of Rebecca that has healed from her past and made a better life for herself. Free to be herself, to be a woman, to choose who to be with, what to care about, to not have her life defined by the approval or permission of others. I can't possibly come up with closing thoughts any better than that, so let me end once more with an important song from my past. This song could be about Rebecca, but anyone of any gender could sing it with feeling and have it be true. Until next time, this is Paula Cole with Me. Me.